a privilege to be here with you this morning. Uh, my wife and I have really appreciated the yeah, the honor of getting to know this church, uh, being here a few times over the last few months, and, and now to have the chance to preach to you is an even greater honor. Um, just to carry on that story, yeah, so two of the five oldest Baptist churches in the world are in the Republic of Ireland, uh, which is incredible. So both, day, and by oldest we mean congregations that still endure to this day. Um, and so both of these date back to the 1600s. Uh, one of those is Cork Baptist, and the other one is Waterford Baptist. And I was just reading actually last night, just a little historical tidbit, that the pastor of Waterford Baptist during the Great Potato Famine actually died because he was out caring for all the people that were struggling in the community there. So that was just a really interesting and moving thing to think about, the, the heritage of Baptists, even in, in the Republic of Ireland where there are so few of them, and yet they have been serving there for many, many years. So there's a little historical tidbit I was reading last night. Would you open with me to Psalm 72 this morning, please? Probably not where you thought you were going to go for a... Uh, beginning of an Advent series, and I trust that in the next few moments it will become clear. Um, but yeah, Psalm 72. Let's pray together as we begin this morning. Christ, we praise you as our Lord. We thank you for the gift of musical worship and the way that it reminds us of so many truths and just brings them with a special amount of warmth to our heart, just drives them home for us. Thank you just for the reminder in that glorious hymn, O Holy Night, that you are not only the Lord and the King, but that you know our need and are no stranger to our weakness. Lord, we are weak this morning. Uh, my words are weak, and I know my brothers and sisters, just like mine, their ears are weak in hearing. We need your help, Lord. We need your help. I need your help to speak in a way that honors you and proclaims you. And they need your help to hear and to listen and to obey. So, Lord, would you help us now for the glory of Christ and for the honor of his eternal name, we pray. Amen. Well, friends, ready or not, it is less than one month till Christmas now, as of this Sunday morning. And these are the weeks where chaos ensues. Travel plans are made, wish lists are populated, homes are decorated, schedules are organized, treats are consumed liberally, and bank accounts are also drained liberally. And in the midst of all of that chaos, we all try to cling to the important things to family, and generosity, and hospitality, and warmth. No matter your religious affiliation or beliefs here this morning, all of us labor to infuse this season with the things we most desperately need. Hope, peace, joy. And yet these concepts are just empty words blowing around in the wind unless they're rooted in some kind of foundation, aren't they? I mean, who brings peace? Who, what grounds joy? Who offers hope? And that's exactly what the story of Christmas found in the Bible's narratives offers for us. The hope and joy and peace that we all long for at Christmas are rooted in these stories for us. 
And what a privilege it is then for you as a church over these next few weeks to reconsider these narratives that the Bible teaches us about the story of Christmas. And in a room this size, as we approach these stories, I would assume that we maybe come from different vantage points. Some of us, perhaps, uh, these narratives are so familiar for us that they have almost lost all meaning. It's just easy to, for your eyes to glaze over and, and, and to not really get much from them when you hear them because you've heard them a hundred times. Perhaps for others of you in this room, you have vague ideas of stables and angels and shepherds and stars, but you aren't entirely sure about the significance of these things. Maybe there's some in this room who have never heard the Christian stories, narratives of Christmas. No matter where we come from, going through these narratives offers all of us a fresh opportunity to answer the question, what is Christmas about? And there are certainly many ways to answer that question from these narratives and from the Bible, and I trust that you will see several of them over the next few weeks. But as we consider these passages, not just the one tonight, but other, all of the Christmas passages really, one of the strongest emphases is kingship. Christmas is about the birth of a king. And in the context of the history of Israel, that is a deeply significant thing to happen. To identify Jesus as king is to pull on a thread that reaches far back into Israel's history. And to emphasize that to you this morning, I want to consider with you a prayer for a king, which was written hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. And that prayer is found in Psalm 72. This psalm is a remarkable prayer for a magnificent king, a king who is both imminently personal and transcendently global. He's a king who focuses his personal attention on the poor, the needy, the afflicted, and delivers them from their oppressors. His rule causes justice and righteousness to flourish. There's no favorites. There's no special treatment. No one is forgotten under his rule. And yet this king also has global ambitions. He expands his rule and his reputation from sea to sea, demanding the allegiance and worship of all kings and all nations for all of time. Imagine a king who sees and cares for individuals and yet who rules the entire world with justice and righteousness. What a king that would be. What hope that would give to those in his kingdom. And my goal this morning is that by the time we look at Gabriel's announcement to Mary in a few moments, that you would see that when understood in its biblical context, this psalm teaches us that Jesus is this divine king. So we should give our lives for the sake of filling the earth with his glory. And we will unpack this in three stages. And I want you to think of this as three different camera lenses through which we should view this psalm. First, we view it through the lens of a prayer for a historical king. Second, as a portrait of a failed kingship. And third, a prophecy of a coming king. So let's begin then by reading the psalm through the lens of a prayer for a historical king. What, what is the historical context of the psalm, and what was its initial purpose when it was written? 
Well, you'll see in your Bible that right above the first verse, it likely says, of Solomon. And these psalm titles are important for interpreting the psalms correctly. And it is possible that this was written by Solomon, but the expression translated here, of Solomon, could just as easily be translated for Solomon. And I would argue that this is actually the more likely translation of this. And one of the main reasons for that is verse 20. Just turn and look at verse 20 of this psalm. Right there it says, The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Now, this is a comment that was added later on when the whole Psalter was being compiled. It was added later by these editors to the book of Psalms. And it has many structuring features in the psalm. But right here, it does appear to emphasize that this is a psalm written by David for his son Solomon as he takes over the throne. Now, I don't want to assume that everyone in this room is familiar with those names, David and Solomon, so let's do a quick review. In the first five books of the Bible, we learn that God chose the nation of Israel to be his people among all of the peoples of the world. And he gave them his law, his Torah, or his instruction, and commissioned them to display his righteousness and his character to all of the nations that were surrounding them. And from the get-go, Israel failed at this. Instead of modeling God's law to the nations around them, they adapted their practices to those nations, eventually asking for a king, just like all the other nations around them. And their first king, Saul, who was the people's choice king, was a complete failure. But the second king, David, who was God's choice, was a man after God's own heart. And God entered a special relationship with him, a covenant which we heard read in 2 Samuel 7 this morning. God promised that if his sons would obey God's instruction, that his kingdom would endure forever. And here in the psalm, we now find ourselves at the end of David's life as he prays for his son, a commissioning prayer for his son as his son is about to take over his throne. Now with that in mind, What does David pray for his son as he takes the throne? Let's go through this in stages, and as we go, we will notice ways that this actually was fulfilled in Solomon's life. The prayer begins with verses 1 through 4, which emphasize the character of the king. So read that with me. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor and the needy, the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. David prays that his son, that God will give his son justice and righteousness so that these traits will characterize his rule over God's people. And elsewhere in the Bible, Yahweh is described as the one who rules with justice and righteousness. So essentially here, David is praying that his son, Solomon, will reflect Yahweh's rule in the world. Now, if you read through the Old Testament, you will notice those two words, justice and righteousness, come up constantly. And often they are paired together and are meant to be read as a word pair. And that word pair is a shorthand summary of the instructions that God gave to Israel when he made a covenant with them, the law or the Torah. So David is praying here essentially that his son will obey God's Torah, 
and bring it to bear in the whole world. And this is the vision for kingship that was originally given back in Deuteronomy. You may remember in Deuteronomy 17, there are instructions that Moses gives for the king, if a king is ever to be appointed. And one of the things that he says is in verse 18, he says, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. By using this language here, David is praying that his son will be the embodiment of Deuteronomy 17, a king who lives and follows God's instruction and brings it to bear in the world. And this was fulfilled in Solomon's life. You may remember in 1 Kings 10, the queen of Sheba comes to visit Solomon at the height of his reign. And she blesses God. And she says that because of Yahweh's love for Israel, he has made Solomon king, quote, in order to carry out justice and righteousness. David's prayer was answered in Solomon's life. Now the next three verses, verses 5 through 7, David prays that Solomon will have an eternal dominion, that his rule will endure forever. And notice how he employs employs language from nature as he prays for this. Verse 5, May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. You hear that language as long as the sun endures and until the moon is no more, no more through all generations. That, that sun and moon language is, is providing this imagery of something enduring and consistent and dependable. And notice as well that he characterizes again the character of the king's rule with, with this nature creation imagery, he, he, he prays that he might be like rain and showers on the earth. And in other words, that he might be life-giving. That is what rain and showers do, is they bring life to the earth. Uh, he says, may righteousness flourish. That's a, a technical word for, for budding or sprouting in a plant. So may, may righteousness or the righteous sprout or bud like a plant under his rule. But not only does David pray that Solomon will have eternal dominion, but in the next four verses, he prays that he will have global dominion, rule through all of time and space. Look at verse 8. May he have dominion from sea to sea, and from the river, that would be the Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. May all nations serve him. Verse 8 here frames Solomon's rule in terms that go back to Adam in the Garden of Eden. I know that you are going through Genesis right now, and so you may remember this in Genesis 1. How does God characterize the commission that he gives to Adam? In Genesis 1.28, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion, that same word, 
over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God placed Adam in a garden paradise, and he gave him this, this dominion, that same word we see in the psalm here, over all things. And he commissioned him to fill the earth, to take the borders of that garden and expand them to the ends of the earth. And Adam failed royally in this, no pun intended. But David prays that his son will succeed, that he will take up Adam's commission, and as God's appointed king, he will expand his rule from the river Euphrates, the garden, all the way to the ends of the earth. And then David begins to describe this in further detail. He calls on desert tribes to bow down to Solomon. These would seem to be those who are living south of Egypt in what is now Ethiopia. Next, he calls on the kings of Tarshish. You'll remember that, that place from the story of Jonah, who views Tarshish as the most likely place to get away from the presence of Yahweh. It is far, far west in what is now modern-day Spain. He prays for coasts and islands. That would be places in the Mediterranean. He prays for Sheba, which is in Arabia to the east, and Seba, which is south in the area near the Red Sea. In all points of the compass, David is just naming out places and calling on those kings to worship. It's like we would say from Canada to South Africa, from Portugal to Japan. That's what he is doing in this section. And you see that just come to its full fruition in verse 11. May all kings fall down before him. May all nations serve him. And this, too, was fulfilled in Solomon's life. If you read through 1 Kings 4 through 10, you will see kings and queens from all over the known world coming and bringing tribute and bowing down to Solomon. Now, these are impressive prayers. I mean, what kind of king deserves to rule through all of space and time? In, a world that, in the world as we know it, that likely sounds like a recipe for tyranny. And verses 12 through 14 then reiterate the character of the king. Why should this king have this kind of rule? Verse 12, For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life. Precious is their blood in his sight. You'll notice the word for at the beginning of verse 12, which shows that this is providing the reasoning for the king's rule. David prays that Solomon will save the poor and afflicted, that he will be a helper to those without help, one who looks with compassion on the needy, one who is a redeemer for those who are oppressed and endure violence because their blood, their lives, is precious in his eyes. And that the word precious, maybe not the best translation. Precious to us today often means babies. But precious here, think of precious stones. Valuable, weighty. The, the blood of this king's people are, is valuable in his eyes. Now verses 15 through 17 echo many of these same sentiments that we have heard, but focus on the response and results for his subjects. Verse 15. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. 
May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. We've seen already how David has referenced both God's covenants with Adam and with Israel and pointed to the king as the one who will fulfill these promises. And now here, you may notice this language from going through Genesis. He references God's covenant with Abraham. If you turn back to Genesis 12, you'll remember this language and the promise that God gives to Abraham when he calls him. Genesis 12 Verse 2, God promises, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see that language there, a great name, the families of the earth receiving blessing, In verse 17 here, David is praying that Solomon will fulfill these promises. And he uses that terminology of the king's name, which is a shorthand expression for his reputation, his character. He prays that it will endure forever. And then he prays that all nations will be blessed by Solomon and call him blessed. You see, God promised Abraham three things, a land, great name, and a blessing. And David prays that Solomon will have the whole earth a name that endures forever, and blessing for all nations. See, David recognizes that all of God's covenant relationships with humanity, with with Adam, with Abraham, with Israel, and with David, have funneled down into this one man, the king, and his descendants. And he is praying that these promises will be fulfilled in Solomon. Finally, then, in verse 18 and 19, David takes that name and blessing terminology and he connects it with Yahweh. Look at verse 18. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Hang on. I thought that we were blessing Solomon and calling for his name to endure forever. How did we suddenly get to blessing Yahweh and calling for Yahweh's name to endure forever? The idea here is that the king is Yahweh's son. He is God's representative ruler. And so when the king's name endures and is blessed, Yahweh's name is blessed as well. The name and reputation of Yahweh and the king rise and fall together. So when the king exercises justice and righteousness, just like Yahweh does, then the nations bless Yahweh through him. And we again see this in 1 Kings. As the nations begin to hear of Solomon's name, they begin to glorify and bless Yahweh's name as well. So, fathers, how about praying these kinds of things for your sons? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, doesn't this seem a little bit larger than life? Just a little too good to be true. For a king. I think it does. And now that we've seen this as a prayer for a historical king, we need to take that lens off and put a new lens on for viewing this psalm as a portrait of a failed kingship. 
Because if you know the story of Solomon, you know that this is sadly not how his story ends, is it? In every area we just described, on every single point, Solomon and his descendants failed. Instead of ruling with Yahweh's justice and righteousness, Solomon and his descendants failed to be kings who obeyed Yahweh's Torah. In defiance of the vision of kingship that we saw in Deuteronomy 17, Solomon disobeyed Yahweh's instruction instead following other gods. And the same was true of, of his sons, the following kings. They, they followed the nations around them, becoming even more wicked than they were. Just like Israel failed to model God's instruction, so did Solomon and his descendants. Instead of having eternal dominion like David prays for, Solomon's kingdom was torn from his son, split in two, and eventually destroyed entirely as foreign nations conquered the people of Israel. Instead of having global dominion, the kingdom of Israel slowly eroded and eroded until the people were sent into exile, no longer even possessing their own land. Just like Adam failed to take dominion over the whole world, so did Solomon and his descendants. Instead of being saviors and redeemers of the poor and afflicted and needy, the kings of Israel were men of violence, selfish ambition, and oppression. Instead of the nations finding blessing in Solomon and his descendants, those who knew Yahweh were on the run, fleeing from these kings. And the promises to Abraham about these nations are not fulfilled in the kingship. Instead, the nations conquered and crushed Israel. And instead of the name of Yahweh being blessed and praised on account of these kings, it was maligned. You can see that especially in the prophecies of Isaiah and Ezekiel, who both emphasize constantly in their prophecies that, that if God will deliver his people, it will just be for the sake of vindicating his name, which has been defamed among his people and among their kings. To, to carry on our camera illustration, this psalm is like a negative portrait of the utter failure of Solomon and his descendants. Perhaps some of you are not old enough to remember camera film, but I am just barely old enough to remember that, taking pictures and then bringing it to Walmart, and you've got the printed pictures and the little sleeve of films with it as well, and, or, or negatives. And the negatives were mirror images of your pictures, right? Every spot that was light was dark, and every spot that was dark was light in these little negatives. And this psalm is like a negative portrait of Solomon and his sons. On every point where they were, where they were prayed for to succeed, they failed. And to feel the full impact of that, we need to think for a moment about the book of Psalms and how it received the form that, it, that we have it in today. Because though this psalm was, was written during the lifetime of Solomon, the book of Psalms as a whole, what we call the Psalter, was compiled much, much later. It was written probably, or, or compiled, edited, probably in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. This was after all of these failed kings, after the exile, in a time when God's people were still largely scattered among the nations, living under foreign rule, with no Davidic king on the throne. In other words, this psalm was added into the Psalter in the context of the failure of its promises to come true. 
And that's actually reflected in how the psalms are put together here in the Psalter. If sometime this week you read the next psalm, which begins a new book, book three in the psalms, you'll see that it is a mournful psalm wondering what happened to these promises that God has made for the king. The wicked just appear to be flourishing all around us. See, the hopes of humanity have narrowed into this king. But by the time that it's added to the songbook, there's no king on the throne, and the nation is just a shell of its former glory. What hope remains for these promises? What hope remains that one day nations will find blessing in the son of David? We need a better son of David. And by placing this psalm in their prayer book, even at the time when they had no king, and when the line of David appeared to be lost to the sands of time, the editors of the psalms demonstrated their hope that God would one day raise up one of David's sons to find final fulfillment to this psalm. And that's the third lens that we need to read the psalm through, as a prophecy of a coming king. Brothers and sisters, look with me now at Luke 1. We're ready to get to the Christmas story here. Now that we have all this language of Psalm 72 rattling around in our heads, look at Psalm, uh, sorry, at uh, Luke 1. We'll start in verse 26. And consider with me Gabriel's words to Mary. Luke 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now listen. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Did you hear that? Does that language sound familiar at all now? There, there's so much that we could draw from this passage, but here I just want to point out how Gabriel characterizes Jesus. He characterizes him according to the promises of Psalm 72, doesn't he? As the coming son of David, who will rule over the house of Jacob forever. Now, imagine yourself in Mary's shoes, a God-fearing Israelite who would have heard Psalm 72 and others like it, all of these prophecies of a coming king all her life. And imagine hearing that your son will be the one who fulfills all of these just larger-than-life promises. But friends, as we consider Jesus, do we not see the perfect fulfillment of all of the of the prayers and promises of this psalm. Jesus is the king who rules his people with justice and righteousness. He is the perfect law keeper who embodies and exemplifies obedience to Yahweh in 
every facet of his life and who came to fulfill the law, meeting its requirements on our behalf. Jesus fulfills God's covenant with Israel. Jesus is the king who has eternal dominion longer than the sun and moon will endure. As one of my faculty used to say, there are only two ways to have eternal dominion. You either keep having sons to keep reigning on your throne, or you just have one son who reigns forever. And that's who Jesus is. Jesus is the king who not only has eternal dominion, but global dominion. From sea to sea, ruling all kings and all nations. Where Adam failed to extend the glory of God through the whole world, Christ as the second Adam, will succeed in the new heavens and the new earth, so fulfilling God's covenant with Adam. And as disciples of Jesus, we labor towards that even now, don't we? Commissioned by our Lord to bring the good news of the forgiveness of sins to all nations, so people from all nations would come and worship this king. Jesus is the king who is deeply personal. He saves the needy. He looks uh, with compassion on the afflicted and redeems the lives of his people from oppression and violence in a greatest way imaginable by redeeming them from slavery to sin and death, our greatest enemies. Jesus redeemed us by dying for us because he counts the blood of his people as precious, valuable in his eyes so valuable that he would die to free us from sin and death. Jesus is the king whose name endures forever, who brings blessing to all nations by announcing the good news of the forgiveness of sins for all who will repent and believe. He fulfills God's covenant with Abraham by bringing that blessing to the nations. And Jesus is God become flesh who vindicates the name of Yahweh in this world and causes his glory to fill the earth. Jesus fulfills every prayer in this psalm. He is the king who we worship and serve. So friends, what is Christmas about? Well, according to the announcement from Gabriel, it is first and foremost about the birth of a king. Christmas means that you and I are not kings. It means that Jesus is the king of all the world for all of time. And how ought we to respond to this king? There's many things that we could say at this point, but let me identify a few. First, what ought to be our response to the personal nature of Jesus' rule that we have considered in this psalm? For those of us who know Jesus is king, our first response ought to be to trust him. I mean, consider this vision of your personal, compassionate king, the one who delivers the oppressed, who saves the needy, for their lives are valuable in his eyes. Brothers and sisters, whatever you are going through right now, Jesus has not forgotten you. You are valuable to him. Your Savior took on human flesh, enduring the same sorrows you endure today, so that he could serve as your merciful, faithful high priest, always making intercession for you. Jesus, your king, loves you. 
Another way that we ought to, to pray for this personal rule of Jesus in our lives is, is to pray, let your kingdom come in our lives. We ought to seek to, by the Spirit, as we consider this vision, bring every part of our lives into submission under his rule and reign. But as a church, too, we ought to pray for this, that Jesus would let his kingdom come in the church, in a, in a community. Remember, friends, Jesus is the head, and the church is his body. And the call for the church as Jesus' body is to reflect her head. And so as a church, you ought to take this vision as a portrait of what does King Jesus desire in his church. A church who reflects this king will be deeply personal, caring for individuals, particularly the poor, the needy, the afflicted the ones who have no helper, the ones who are oppressed. And as you work together for the good of individuals around you in that way with the gifts that each one of you have been given in this church, you will together reflect the glory of that king who you serve, who loves the needy and the afflicted. That's some ways that we can apply this personal nature of Jesus' rule. But what about the global nature of Jesus' rule? How ought we to respond to that? Our first appropriate response to this just frankly stunning picture of King Jesus is worship. Our whole lives ought to be worship of this king. May may I make a suggestion that when you sit down tomorrow to read your Bible, or maybe this afternoon or evening, instead of calling it devotions or Bible reading or any other number of terms that we use, why not think of it as personal worship? And instead of just looking to learn something or to encourage you, though those are valuable and important things that that we pray for in that time, why not ask God to just blow oxygen on the fire of worship in your heart during that time? You were created to worship God first and foremost. Perhaps you are here today and you do not yet worship Jesus. Maybe you are in a Christian family and you come to church regularly and you know about Jesus and you talk about Jesus and you, uh, yeah, you are familiar with these stories about Jesus, but perhaps you have not yet bowed your knees to worship Jesus. If that is you, friend, this morning, the most important response for you this morning is to worship Jesus. One day you will bow down to him and you will worship him. One day. Do it today while there is time rather than waiting for a day of judgment in the future. For those of us who do know Jesus, another way to respond to this is to spread the news of his global rule. Jesus rules from sea to sea. And his kingdom will have no end. His rule is not inhibited or threatened by the kingdoms of this world. And as worshipers of Jesus, we have the privilege of announcing his reign to those who are around us. Friends, do you consider that as you tell people about Jesus, you are bringing his blessing to them? It's not a sales pitch that you are making. You are announcing the rule of the king so that the nations who hear might find blessing in him, and so the whole world might be filled with his glory. This is Jesus' world. You are always on home turf when you talk about him. And as you share the news of his rule, 
You are extending his blessing, extending his dominion from sea to sea. What about as a church? How can you respond to this global picture of Jesus' reign? You can work to be fired by a global vision. The whole earth knowing this king. The world being filled with his glory. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have global ambitions for the fame of Jesus. So let me encourage you to align yourselves as a church around this kind of vision, this global vision. Let your vision, this vision of of his rule and reign, direct your efforts, your stewardship of your time and your money and the space that you have, your development of programs, your day-to-day interactions with each other and with the community and those who are around you. Let your vision be aligned with the one whose name will endure forever and whose kingdom will know no end. There's many other things that we could say by way of response to this, but we'll leave it there. Brothers and sisters, Christmas is about Jesus. Jesus, the divine king who rules both personally and globally. So let us give everything that we have for the sake of filling the earth with his glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bow in worship to you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we pray and long for the day when you return and when this whole world is filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen.